millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Rob Malley. Welcome to this new episode of our podcast, Hold Your Fire, joined again by Crisis Group's Chief of Policy, Richard Atwood. Richard, good to have you. Great to be on again. So the main topic we're going to be discussing today with two guests, Dalia Shendlin and Ricardo Fabiani, is the recent normalization between Israel and Morocco and U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. But before we get there, Richard, curious, what struck you this week in the world of conflict? Well, I guess some good news, and I actually wanted to ask you about this, the vaccines, the rollout of vaccines starting in the in the US, I think, uh, was it this week? And the UK, they've been rolled out. Yeah. My parents, I think, are get a vac- getting vaccined in uh, in January. I think my grandmother, who's 100 years old, should be getting vaccined at some point soon. Congratulations. Yeah, but I wanted to ask you not about when my grandmother is getting her vaccine, which probably I should know the answer to, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, you, we've written a lot about the potential link between the pandemic, the economic downturn that's almost certain to ensue, and the risk of instability, the risk of conflict. So how do you see the rollout of the vaccine as impacting some of, some of that? So first, I mean, you've gotten me into this habit at the end of our show to talk about um, reason for cheerfulness. So maybe I'll, I'll use it now at the beginning, which is it is a reason for cheerfulness to have this vaccine, I think. As you know, my, my brother, this is his expertise, is vaccines, and he's just been absolutely stunned at the speed. It's, it's unprecedented by a factor of several years to get a vaccine this quickly. So I think we really should be grateful for that. I think we've also known for some time that it's not just the health consequences that could be destabilizing. Many of the developing countries have been spared that. Again, one of the pleasant surprises. But the economic consequences, which are going to last even once the vaccine is distributed, and let's not ignore the fact that vaccines are probably going to go to the wealthy countries first. I'm curious what you think, but I don't imagine that despite everything we're hearing about the altruism, 
that we're going to see as many doses going to developing countries. So they're going to have to deal with the economic consequences, people not wanting to travel, trade, commerce, the, the overall collapse in the economy, and the fact that Western developed countries are not going to have as many resources to, to, to share. So I think our concern now is looking at the economic long effect of, of COVID and how it may destabilize countries that certainly don't need that. Does that fit with how you see things? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, for some time, we've sort of looked at the potential implications for the economic downturn in, in many of the countries we cover. And, and it's a difficult one because obviously the link between economic instability, certainly poverty, economic shocks and conflict, the link is quite complicated. It's difficult to say when a downturn is going to lead to discontent, when discontent is going to lead to unrest, when unrest is going to lead to violence, when violence is going to lead to a major conflict. So, you know, with all those caveats, I think still it's clear that a number of countries are going to have quite a rocky road ahead. I think the other thing that's interesting, and you know, we've talked about this before, is what the impact in some of the world's worst war zones is likely to be. I mean, what's, what's been striking in some ways is how little the pandemic has changed the calculations of warring parties, has changed dynamics of fighting. I was struck last month, the World Food Programme warned that four countries, or a number of countries, but four in particular, faced sort of risks of famine or of acute food insecurity, mm -hmm. Yemen, of course, Burkina Faso, uh, northeast Nigeria, uh, South Sudan. And the WFP, World Food Programme, said this was because of a mix of conflict, economic decline, climate extremes and the pandemic. Even if the pandemic doesn't change the dynamics of fighting, it's easy to see how it could, could increase suffering uh, on the ground. Yeah, no, that's a good if depressing thought. One other event I want to ask you briefly about, uh, which did occur this week, were the elections in Venezuela, the parliamentary elections, which the candidates affiliated with President Maduro's party won overwhelmingly, given an opposition boycott. Any repercussions in terms of the prospects for resolving the Venezuelan crisis, which has had, as you know, it's one of those countries that has suffered huge humanitarian consequences as a result of the political crisis and the economic mismanagement. So what, how should we see those elections and what, what might they produce? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a huge surprise that President Maduro's party cleaned up in, in the elections, uh, given the opposition boycott. But as you say, the big question is sort of what this means for international policy towards uh, towards Venezuela. Now, broadly speaking, over the last few years, there's been a strategy sort of based on recognizing Juan Guaido, the uh, majority leader of the National Assembly that's just been voted out as interim president, while at the same time trying to squeeze and eventually get rid of Maduro. And I think with these elections, it's clear that that strategy has failed, that despite sanctions, despite isolation from most of the region, from Europe, from the US, Maduro arguably looks stronger than uh, he has in some time. Military leaders didn't turn on him. He's still supported by China, by Russia, by Cuba. And the opposition is now deeply divided. Mm -hmm. So I think the real question is sort of what is the next step? What does a new approach from Europe, from the region, from the US look like? My sense is, broadly speaking, Now, what's needed is, is an approach that isn't centered on ousting Maduro. So it's more offering Maduro, his government, a part in Venezuela's future. But sort of what that means in practice, how getting to credible elections is still unclear. And, I, you know, I don't think we could be under any illusions about how difficult it's going to be. Well, let's make it a date that we will invite our Venezuela analysts to come join us because there's much more to talk about. But I do want to turn to the main segment of our program, which is Western Sahara, Morocco and Israel. So... Let's, let's move to that and we'll come back to Venezuela in the coming weeks. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So 
So Richard, let's turn now to the main item for today's podcast, which is extremely timely. It's the Moroccan quasi-normalization with Israel, the U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. We have two really ideal guests to talk to us about it. First, Dalia Shenlin, Dr. Dalia Shenlin, I should say. Uh, she's a political analyst and a fellow with the Century Foundation whose expertise happens to be on unrecognized or what she calls phantom states. So Dalia, great to have you on. Thank you for having me on the show. And our own Ricardo Fabiani, who's our North Africa project director, who has thought and written a lot about Morocco and the Western Sahara. Ricardo, good to have you on. Yeah, good to be here. So let me start just with the news, Dalian. And, and obviously the, the big news came when it was announced that Morocco was normalizing, and there's some debate about it, its relations with Israel, and that the U.S. President Trump was recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. So, Dalia, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what was the impact in Israel? How do people view this? Is this a big milestone in their pursuit of, of normalization with Arab states? Is it a big victory for Prime Minister Netanyahu? How is it viewed from Israel, where I should say you are, you are now based? Yeah, certainly it's viewed as another victory for Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, the interesting thing is that he is seen as such a towering statesperson in Israeli life that even those who don't vote for him, and I would venture to say even those who don't like him, give him credit for being the most successful statesperson because the general attitude in Israel is that this wave of normalization or what has been called the Abraham Accords, starting with uh, the Gulf states, uh, UAE and Bahrain, are seen only in a positive light. There is no critical angle or downside from the perspective of the Israeli public. Uh, in fact, the right wing in particular is happy because all of these deals make it look like Israel is essentially getting the great prize of full normalization, diplomatic relations. Peace uh, is a word we are now hearing for the first time in years in the Israeli uh, political and media discourse without having had to give up anything to the Palestinians in return. Of course, that's a historic reversal from the decades-long you know, understanding in the Middle East that if Israel wanted to normalize its relations, it would first have to you know, release the grip on the Palestinians, uh, allow them self-determination, probably in the form of a state or a two-state solution, uh, was the understood approach, certainly according to the Arab Peace Initiative starting way back in 2002 and even going back before that. As it's happened, none of that has taken place. There is no agreement with the Palestinians. The Palestinians now have you know, the sense that there's no backers, uh, nobody holding, you know, holding out any incentive for Israel. They've given Israel the incentive uh, without having to have paid the price. And this makes Netanyahu look like an extremely clever statesperson. I would, will remind people that Netanyahu fought three election cycles in the course of 2019 and 20. He is also facing three major counts of corruption, and his trial has already formally started and is set to re restart again in, within the next few months. And yet he essentially managed to, in one way or another, uh, win the elections. Uh, I should qualify that because he wasn't able to win them outright. But he did stay in power despite a you know, very weakened position at home. And I think one of the major reasons is that he has portrayed such great acumen uh, in terms of foreign policy. But I think that there are a lot of very critical angles that are not well understood in Israel that we will hopefully talk about. The main one is that Israel is forming essentially a series of alliances with authoritarian and illiberal countries and helping to broadly undermine 
the international system, which allows people the right of self-determination and precludes taking territories by force. And the latest deal with Morocco is the best example of that. Right. Well, but in Israel's case, obviously, there's, there's the end, which I want to come to, which is how are they looking at it also in terms of the West Bank. But before I get to that, um, is there, I mean, is there any criticism in Israel? Or, or is it fair to say this is really a milestone that Netanyahu has managed to cross by proving? or demystifying the notion that Arab states would only normalize once peace had been attained with Palestinians, something that so many of us have been uh, sort of parroting for years. I assume it's a wall-to-wall support and nobody is questioning. They may regret the fact that there's no progress with the Palestinians, but is there any sort of different tone? Yes, for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm only, I'm exaggerating. Of course, there are some people who have a critical approach, mostly on the left or people who understand the, you know, the global Uh, import of all this. And I think that there are various critical angles that need to be examined, whether Israeli society at large is examining them. Certainly, I can tell you that public opinion polls show very high support for this when it was tested or when when the normalization deals and Abraham Accords with the Gulf states were tested. We saw very high support from the Israeli public. And of course, you know, mainstream commentators are generally supportive and people think it's a good thing. However, I think anybody who's seriously engaged on the Israeli-Palestinian front sees a, a number of pitfalls. And I alluded to some of them already. One is that the very fact that this does undermine uh, one of the factors that has played a role in Israel's incentive to reach peace with the Palestinians, and that's no longer there. That will set back any attempt to reach some sort of permanent status resolution with the Palestinians. That means Israel and the Palestinians continue living with an unresolved conflict. Palestinians continue living under occupation, and this is a destabilizing factor in the region. Israelis may not kind of feel it day to day because they've become so used to it. But we are all living in a war zone. And if anybody has any doubts that unresolved conflicts do eventually escalate, we need only look at Western Sahara last month. And I'm sure that Ricardo will talk about that, as well as the Caucasus, where another unresolved conflict exploded with great cost to human life. This is what happens when you live in an unresolved conflict. Uh, I think also this helps solidify Netanyahu's position on the domestic front, which makes many of his opponents, and we're talking about a great many voters who oppose Netanyahu, are not happy uh, if his political position is stronger at home. Uh, I think that this this kind of alliance of illiberal and authoritarian countries is dangerous for Israel. It legitimizes illiberal and authoritarian uh, uh, rule at home in general, because these are, you know, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. Um, And I think also it, it does something else, which is create a sense that America under Trump and Israel together is the only way to get stuff done. And the only way foreign policy or international affairs can you know, change or move is with Trump personally managing these transactional deals. That's not a very healthy way to advance foreign relations, especially given how much it undermines the post-war international order. So we have to you know, kind of try to pull back from the brink now that Trump uh, will no longer be there and you know, see if there's something to salvage in terms of reinforcing the norms of the post-war system that have been already weakened and damaged in general. Uh, But this is sort of, I think, creating an emerging club of leaders who are perfectly happy to undermine it through sort of 19th century, you know, gunboat diplomacy. Every, you know, everyone from Vladimir Putin to uh, Erdogan of Turkey and Netanyahu certainly leading that charge. And Trump, maybe not getting America involved as much in foreign wars, but giving the political backing to it, to this approach, which is, you know, just take what you want by force. And that's been severely damaging. So yes, there is criticism, but it, it, it's probably it's a minority within Israel. 
So let's turn to the unresolved conflict in Western Sahara in a moment. But first, Ricardo, could I ask you about the reaction in Morocco to both the reestablishment of formal ties between Morocco and Israel, but also the reaction to what Morocco got in return, which was U.S. recognition, President Trump's recognition of Morocco's claim over Western Sahara. Is this seen generally in Rabat, in Morocco, as pure good? Is this all good? Or are there people that see the exchange of recognition for Morocco's claim over Western Sahara in exchange for the formalization of ties with Israel, that there's been a trade-off and people accept there's been a trade-off and there's some, some disquiet about that? Or is it generally a good thing? I think there are two main reactions that we can identify in Morocco right now. One reaction is obviously one of overwhelming support for the U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. And uh, I think there's a strong consensus that um, the American recognition is a good thing for Morocco, is a good thing for uh, what they call uh, territorial integrity. And again, this is also considered a red line, I would say, inside Morocco. Nobody is really allowed to discuss this or to oppose this kind of policy. But then there's also the other side, I would say, of the coin, which is Morocco's normalization of ties uh, with Israel, which has actually sparked a major debate uh, inside Morocco. There's been a lot of pushback, a lot of opposition, particularly for more, from more left-leaning groups uh, within Moroccan civil society and Islamist groups as well. And we have already seen yesterday, actually, we saw... Uh, an attempt to organize a major protest in downtown Rabat uh, with several thousand people gathering and trying to protest in front of the Moroccan institutions. The protest was uh, preempted by uh, police intervention. But, you know, that aside, I think it shows very well that uh, the consensus on Western Sahara and the positive impact of the U.S. recognition does not translate into a positive reaction to Moroccan uh, normalization of ties with with Israel, very different. And so let's then come to the conflict in Western Sahara. So, Ricardo, first, do you want to just give a little bit of background to the conflict before we talk about what the uh, U.S. recognition of Morocco's claim on Western Sahara actually means? Well, the conflict itself dates back to 1975 and Spanish decolonization from uh, uh, this territory. At the time, there was uh, an attempt initially to hand over the control of the territory to the Polisario Front and therefore the Sahrawi population, which was later denied by an agreement between Spain, Morocco and Mauritania to leave this area to the Moroccans and the Mauritanians. That was the beginning of the conflict, which went on until 1991. In 1991, there was a ceasefire and the beginning of an, I would say, open-ended diplomatic process that was meant to uh, end with a referendum on self-determination to allow the Western Saharan population to decide on its future. The referendum, however, never took place. And uh, what uh, followed was actually what I said, what I called an open-ended process with lots of attempts to broker talks and negotiations between the two sides to have everyone sit at the same table and come up with some sort of different solution from the referendum. The reality is that We have got to uh, this year without any progress in terms of diplomatic talks, with no UN personal envoy since May 2019, which was when the last UN personal envoy, former German President Urs Kohler, uh, resigned. And most importantly, there's been a void. There's been a void in terms of diplomatic action since May 2019, which has been filled by unilateral initiatives 
on the ground, both from Morocco and to an extent also from the Polisario Front. And this, literally, these unilateral actions have led uh, finally to the latest escalation with the end of the ceasefire, which was declared by the Polisario Front uh, in mid-November, a new round of hostilities, and lately at the, the latest development, which is the US recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. And so, as you say, there was this escalation last month after a long ceasefire. And now on top of that, there's the US recognition of Morocco's claim. How have people in Western Sahara responded to that position? And how, what do you think it means for prospects of, of the conflict escalating? So, you know, the, the, the vast majority of pro-Polisario Sahrawi uh, supporters and activists were already enraged and furious at the lack of diplomatic intervention by the United Nations Security Council. Uh, as I mentioned, there was no UN personal envoy appointed by the UN Secretary General since May 2019. There was no intervention or uh, uh, really um, any type of discussion at the UN Security Council besides the annual renewal of the UN mission uh, in Western Sahara. There was a distinct feeling within the Sahrawi population that nobody could care about this conflict, that nobody cared about the Sahrawi uh, position and their plight in the refugee camps in Algeria and so on. Now, the US recognition in West, uh, of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara has only made this much worse. There is now the, the feeling that I was just describing of disenchantment or frustration with the situation has been, I would say, even more fueled to an extent by this decision, by this US, you know, American recognition of Moroccan sovereignty, there is now not only disenchantment with the international community, but is, there is actually, I would say, uh, rage. There is anger at the fact that the international community has de facto acknowledged and accepted Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. Obviously, this is not true for everyone in the international community. It's true for the US, but because it's the US, obviously, this has a different impact. So, when it comes to how people are reacting to this, there's not only anger, there is also mobilization. And there is the Sahrawi youth in the refugee camp camps, the Sahrawi youth and the Sahrawi diaspora in Europe and elsewhere, which are all apparently flocking to back to the refugee camps, trying to enlist uh, with the Polisario. They want to fight. They, want, they all believe that effectively the only solution uh, at this point is violence because it's only through conflict, through violence, that their position will be recognized and will and their their ideas, their their point of view will be actually uh, taken in consideration by the international community. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today we're talking with Dalia Schendlin and Ricardo Fabiani. So I want to turn to Dahlia for a second again, because as I mentioned, and you may have some thoughts on what Ricardo just said, because coincidentally or not, your expertise is not just Israel, but also unrecognized states. But listening to Ricardo also, I want to ask you this. Yes, there's support in Israel for what's just happened across these normalizations. But with the exception perhaps of Bahrain, in every case, it was a barter exchange, you know, in the case of, of, of UAE, the arms sales, in the case of Sudan lifting of the terrorism designation in the U.S., in the case of Morocco, recognition of Moroccan sovereignty of Western Sahara. That doesn't really give a sense of, of very deep peace or, or normalizations. They seem to be mainly because of other interests, not because these countries have decided suddenly that they want to make peace with Israel. 
does that unseemliness have any impact for Israelis who think, well, this is not done because they want to normalize with us, but it's done because they have other benefits or not? No, I think, again, if you're going back to the perspective of Israelis, the Israeli public can generally be described as hardcore realists when it comes to the international system. They're not thinking about what's right, wrong, nice, or pretty. They're thinking about what's in Israel's interest, and they fully understand that other countries have their own interests. Israelis also tend to be fairly provincial. I think it has to do with being in a small country that has up until now been quite isolated by conflict. Uh, And also the fact of an ongoing conflict means people are very focused on internal or conflict local affairs and, and really never paid much attention to some of these other conflicts. Let's be honest, Western Sahara is not generally on the global radar most of the time. Neither is Kosovo or Serbia, by the way. And we might want to also add that there was another interesting Balkan breakthrough that nobody understood that had a lot to do with this issue as well, because all of a sudden, in return for both Serbia and Kosovo claiming that they would open an open representation, representative uh, offices or embassies in Jerusalem, suddenly Israel recognized Kosovo, another interesting political payback that has to do with this question of you know, the recognition of, uh, which actually upset one of Israel's allies, Serbia. But in this case, I think that the Israelis really know nothing about Western Sahara. What I do think is important to emphasize uh, in a follow-up to your question is that this is not just transactional. This is about heavy arms sales from the U.S. to both UAE and to Morocco. It has already been reported that the U.S. will be uh, selling perhaps $1 billion worth of Uh, very heavy weaponry. We're talking about drones. We're talking about Hellfire missiles, precision guided missiles. I mean, you know, it's a very grim replay of what we saw happening for years in the Caucasus conflict where Russia, Turkey and Israel were pouring arms into a conflict zone. And sure enough, they eventually get used. And this is all happening, as Ricardo pointed out, at the moment when uh, Western Sahara is at an extremely delicate point, you know, on the cusp of an escalation. So I don't think Israelis are necessarily aware of that, but let's also not minimize minimize the role of Gulf countries in proxy wars in the Middle East. So when people say, isn't this wonderful that Netanyahu is bringing peace to the Middle East, I have a hard time seeing it as truly advancing peace. It's not advancing peace with the Palestinians, and it's not advancing peace in the region. It may be contributing to escalation in the region. And I also do want to go back to something that Ricardo said about the Western Sahara and the Sahrawis losing faith in the international community, I feel like sometimes when we talk about the importance of the international system, it sounds arbitrary, and maybe it's not clear why. But, you know, if the UN is to have any role, there have been numerous UN General Assembly resolutions and UN Security Council resolutions over decades reaffirming the right to self-determination of the Sahrawi people, as well as the International Court of Justice, which essentially affirmed that right in its advisory opinion in 1975. You know, the Organization of African Unity or the uh, African Union, uh, many of those countries have recognized the Sahrawi people's right to self-determination. If any of that is to have any meaning, all of these institutions, all of these concepts of international law that were painstakingly built over the course of the latter part of the 20th century, with the express purpose of deterring conventional war, including the prohibition, of course, on taking territory by force, which was one of the major incentives for war. If all of that is to be discounted uh, or undermined, that also contributes long term to the continuation of conventional war or non-conventional war. And so even if Israelis don't understand that, I wish interested observers would understand it and eventually everybody involved. So, so Ricardo, Dada just mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the U.N. process and, and these U.N. resolutions and how it appears like, you know, some of them may have gone up in smoke. But I'm curious from your perspective, as you look at Morocco, as you look at the, at the Palazzario, 
Do you think from their respective perspectives, the UN process is now not void? Will Morocco say that's a thing of the past because now our sovereignty has been recognized? Or are we just back to the same process under the different circumstances, but the same questions will come up and, and, and Morocco is going to have to confront the issue at one point of self-determination of the Western Sahara? How do you think Moroccans view it now and the Polisario? Well, the paradox here is that the Moroccans are actually uh, the most committed right now to uh, the UN, uh, whatever we want to call it, diplomatic process uh, and the UN uh, Security Council resolutions. Because from their perspective, from their uh, point of view, uh, what has happened just reinforces their negotiating stance, uh, reinforces the, their commitment to the ceasefire. Obviously, Morocco is uh, in a very strong position now to claim that they are still committed to the ceasefire. The US, the U.S. recognition of Western Sahara is actually a support or some form of backing for their autonomy plan, which still remains their main official uh, proposition on this conflict. The idea that they are willing to give Western Sahara a degree of autonomy and uh, control over their internal matters in return for uh, um, their flag and currency, effectively, for, for Moroccan flag and the Moroccan currency. Uh, so in all of this, the Moroccans are effectively just repeating this mantra of uh, sticking with the peace process, sticking with the ceasefire. The Polisario, on the other hand, has a completely different position, which is obviously that uh, the ceasefire is over, has ended. Uh, there is a need to reset the whole uh, UN approach to this conflict, and particularly the UN Security Council approach to this conflict. They complain that the resolutions have become increasingly uh, more uh, pro-Moroccan over the years. And they see this U.S. recognition uh, of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara as null and void. It doesn't mean anything, uh, even though it actually does pose a, a serious problem because the U.S. are the main driver at the, within the U.N. Security Council of other resolutions, are the pen holder when it comes to Western Sahara. They play a key role uh, in everything that is uh, uh, really related to Western Sahara from a diplomatic perspective. So now there is obviously an ambiguity uh, in that respect that needs to be resolved uh, in a way or in another. And Morocco and the Polisario seem to have very different views, very different ideas on how to go about this. Ricardo, could I ask, this? something that's often struck me about the, the Western Sahara conflict is that across the Sahel, Islamist militants, Al-Qaeda-linked militants, ISIS-linked militants, they've proven very uh, capable of piggybacking on local causes, local conflicts, whether in Mali, now Burkina Faso, parts of Niger. They piggybacked on the Tuareg self-determination struggle. Many of those militants are themselves Sahrawis. And yet the Western Sahara cause has somehow bucked that trend. What, do you want to say a word or two about why you think that's the case and, and whether that might at some point change? Well, the... I would say the main explanation for uh, the Western Sahara's, let's say, reluctance to get involved with certain uh, actors in the Sahel region is really down to the, the Polisario and Algeria. Obviously, Algeria is a key actor here because it hosts the main Sahrawi refugee camps and it's also, it also hosts and supports uh, the Polisario Front. And both actors are obviously ideologically, you know, one could claim they're both ideologically left-leaning or associated or affiliated with certain ideas stemming from, obviously, the 1960s and 1970s. But the truth is that they know very well, both of them, that any association, any sort of a suspicion of collaboration with any of these jihadist actors in the region would just undermine their cause. It would just be a self-defeating move 
any sort of, as I said, collaboration or even tactical alliance, it would be a self-defeating move for their cause, for the cause of um, Sahrawi uh, self-determination in, in, in Western Sahara. And if you go to the refugee camps and if you visit uh, that, that area of Tindouf in Algeria, you will find a true military deployment with checkpoints, both manned by the Algerian army up to a point and after that by the Polisario itself. And one of the goals is actually to avoid any sort of infiltration inside the refugee camps. Also because a few years back there was a kidnapping of uh, some NGO workers who were present in the refugee camps by jihadist groups. And that really left a mark. It really, uh, I would say, shocked the Polisario and it pushed them to take, to double down, if you like, on this policy of uh, avoiding any sort of contamination with these uh, uh, with these actors. So uh, back to Dalian. On one, one analogy, obviously, one that I'm sure many Israelis have thought of, which is if the U.S. recognizes the Moroccan sovereignty of the Western Sahara, why can't it recognize Israel's sovereignty over the West Bank? How much of that has become sort of an undercurrent of the discussion in Israel? People saying, "Well, what about us? And what's the difference? And how much pressure does it put on Netanyahu to try to move in that direction too?" I think this is um, it's it's the reverse. I mean, you know, a lot of this policy, I think, was practiced already. There were sort of practice runs when the Trump administration recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which was a major, major break with American foreign policy and another one of those major injuries to the international norm of not taking territory by force. Uh, I think, you know, when that happened, first of all, we have to remember there is a you know somewhat of a difference even in, in international law. I mean, the idea that Israel in 1967 conquered sovereign Syrian territory this was not disputed territory. Now, in truth, international law doesn't really distinguish. No territory should be conquered by force. But the fact that it was sovereign Syrian territory actually makes it even a more egregious case. Uh, and for that to be openly recognized by America, you know, kind of burst a dam. I think that in fact you know, legitimized or routinized the idea that America can just remake the rules of foreign policy and recognize these land grabs when it wants to, which is why I think that that's why I said it's a little bit the reverse. Of course, even even, uh, another thing that happened before uh, this development with Morocco was that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, made the declaration, made the determination that Israeli settlements in the West Bank do not violate international law and then recently legitimized them by, by coming to visit, which was also you know, fairly unprecedented. And I think all of those things, again, are basically a sign, you know, America saying, we don't recognize the principles and the reasons and the aims of these international laws and and norms. Uh, And we will simply conduct our foreign policy in ways that advance our interests, the interests of our allies, and we don't care about the consequences for the rest of the world. So, you know, in that sense, I think Israelis felt like they were being showered with gifts up until now. Uh, These normalization deals are just a bonus. And there is, of course, you know, an ongoing debate in Israel about whether Israel should move ahead on some form of annexation of some part of the West Bank. But to be honest, it was never genuinely very urgent. This sounds strange considering how much noise it made over the last year and a half. But Netanyahu, I think, was really mainly using the idea of annexation as part of the ongoing political campaigns. Uh, The public was never that enthusiastic about it. You had barely half of the Israeli public that supported it. In fact, usually not even half of the entire Israeli public, just over half of the Jewish Israeli public. And the reason was, 
you know, for the right wing, the, the ones who were really attuned to what's going on on the ground in the West Bank, they see the reality. Israel is advancing its physical de facto sovereignty uh, with a sort of creeping annexation, not so different from what Russia has been doing in Georgia for years uh, in the breakaway republics, uh, you know, just establishing facts on the ground. So the settlers and the right wingers kind of know clearly that this is already actually happening, as one of them likes to tell me, we're winning. We don't mind. And I think, you know, for the rest of Israelis, they didn't either thought it was not a good idea or didn't really care or didn't understand why we should rock the boat. And this has worked in Israel's favor over the years. Annexation comes in many forms. This is what I think people have to realize. Even uh, if Morocco's claim to Western Sahara has now been recognized formally, the fact is that Morocco has established itself very deeply and its control has been, you know, very powerful over that area. It's going to be very hard to roll that back at this point. This is why when the international community is confronted with situations of, you know, an occupation or military encroachment uh, into either a territory or a sovereign territory, they should take it seriously from the very beginning because facts do evolve on the ground and it will be hard to reverse them. I was joking the other day that it's a good thing Russia has no more relations with Israel or the Trump administration would recognize its annexation of Crimea. But I do want to, you just made a point. So now it's January 21st and Joe Biden, now President Biden, calls you and says, Dahlia, I have to confront the recognition of sovereignty in the Golan, what happened in Jerusalem and now Western Sahara. Um, should I reverse these at the cost of creating such tensions with uh, countries with which we have fairly good relations? Or just swallow it, but say, we still need to resolve the Israeli-Syrian conflict. We still need to resolve the question of the uh, Western Sahara. No, I don't think reversing uh, normalization agreements is either realistic or desirable. To be honest, my approach is think about how to make lemonade. I mean, you know, peace deals inherently should be a good thing. Those of us who care, who, you know, oppose war and support peace should like this. It's kind of tragic that there's actually so many bad consequences that we can't support them. I think that what the Biden administration should be thinking about is how do I uh, get back to the goal of resolving conflicts rather than letting them fester? What has to happen for us to get there? And Ricardo mentioned something earlier, which I think is very important. The signal that this gives in the case of Western Sahara, the Sahrawi people, and, you know, signals are really important. The symbolism of all this is huge. So, you know, if you were to ever woo back the parties that have been suffering under you know, lack of self-determination or living in refugee camps uh, or under occupation. There are numerous steps that I think the American administration can take to show, to signal, to symbolize that they really are committed to not only resolving the conflict, but resolving it in a way that will really address the claims and the commitment of those people to self-determination, the right of people to live freely and independently, not under military occupation or in refugee camps, or both in the case of the Palestinians. And you know, there are numerous such, we can go through them, but there are many examples of what the administration can do on the Palestinian side. We have, you know, they're fairly well known. Uh, the U.S. can reestablish, you know, a, a consular office serving Palestinians in Jerusalem, can reopen PLO representation in Washington, can restart funds to the Palestinian Authority. Many, many ways that the administration can say we, we are committed to resolving this in a way that will provide you with, you know, better life and self-determination. I, and I'm that, in that situation, and if this is a huge if, if you ever have an Israeli leader who would genuinely be committed to such a process, whether it's towards the two-state solution or some other form of, again, ending occupation and allowing Palestinian self-determination, then I think in that case, in fact, the fact that Israel has more uh, agreements with countries in the general region that support its regional integration 
there is a way to leverage that to contribute to such a process. And of course, it depends on whether those countries have an interest in it. Right now, as we started off this discussion, you know, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, their interests have very little to do with the Palestinians, right? They want to buy those weapons from America. They want the diplomatic recognition or whatever. But theoretically, rhetorically even, and again, as Ricardo pointed out, there are elements within Moroccan society that are committed to the Palestinian cause. If those forces should come together, an American administration committed to it, an eventual possible hypothetical, rather theoretical Israeli administration committed to uh, you know, reviving some sort of a peace process, then I think that those agreements could actually serve well. There's plenty that those countries could do to help support conflict resolution, support Palestinian society, invest in Palestinian economy, uh, advance global uh, regional, regional integration for both parties. And, you know, I hope I'm alive for that day. As you said, it's a little bit sad that in, rather than just celebrating what should be celebrated, if we could, you know, normalizations between countries, countries that have not had good relations before, it comes with so many asterisks and so many caveats and warnings. But I want to thank you, Dalia and Ricardo, for having taken us from Israel to the Western Sahara, to the Caucasus and, and elsewhere. We learned a lot. And there'll be, I'm sure, more of this to come, not just in the remaining days of the Trump administration, but with Biden. So thanks again to the two of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Okay, Rob, so let me ask again, what, um, what has been your reason to be cheerful this week? Reason to be cheerful. Uh, well, you know, like last week, I'm going to take uh, some bad news with a big silver lining. You know, we, we marked the two-year anniversary of our colleague Michael Kovrig's uh, detention, and we spoke to his wife last week. What has been, for me, a reason for optimism is the outpouring of support. You know, we did this thing where we asked people to walk five kilometers. I know you did it several times because that's what he paces in his cell every day. And people who don't know Michael, who don't know Crisis Group, started posting on social media that they too were walking that distance. And I know almost everyone at Crisis Group did it, and now others doing it in solidarity. I think that put a smile on, on my face, and I suspect it, it's putting a smile on Michael's face as well. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been extremely moving. Uh, you know, I have to say that seeing colleagues and, and others sort of sharing videos and expressing their solidarity for what's happened to Michael, and it's obviously that the tragedy of of him losing really two years of his life because of this is you know it's, it's difficult to, to overstate that. But at the same time, seeing these sort of outpourings of solidarity has been extremely moving. So a rich week uh, for people who are interested in conflict. We issued a statement, a joint statement with the U.S. Middle East Project, with whom we have a partnership on recommending a new U.S. approach to peace in Israel-Palestine, a report on uh, Venezuela and Colombia. So we spoke about Venezuela, but this is a report on the border, a very tense border between Venezuela and Colombia. We inaugurated a new series of updates, bi-weekly, every two-week updates on the situation in Libya. The first one came out this week. And finally, a report on electoral tensions in uh, the Central Africa Republic. So very varied and a large menu for our readers this past week. And that's it for this week. We'll take a two-week break for the holidays. We'll be back on January 7th. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much. I want to thank again Ricardo and Dahlia. Please send your questions to media at crisisgroup.org. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thanks to the Crisis Group team for putting this podcast together. Have a good week and a good holiday, and we'll be back soon enough. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.